All right, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation. We're uh, making our way through these letters to the seven churches, and today we come to this little church in Philadelphia. I'm thankful for this encouraging word from Philadelphia. Um, in our travels, the worst experience I've ever had in my life at an airport was at Philadelphia. And every time I read the name Philadelphia, I think about those jerks that were in that airport. I'm telling you, they were just not very nice. Uh, so I'm thankful for this, all right? So that's complete, got nothing to do with this passage. But every time I read about this church in Philadelphia, I'm thankful for this good word about them. And it is a good word about this church. Um, so follow along with me as we, uh, as we read this passage in Revelation, all right? Starting in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. And have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about faithful endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. Excuse me, on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing over your word. We thank you that it's alive, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that, Lord, you commend even as you condemn sometimes and criticize. But, Lord, we thank you for this good word about this little church in Philadelphia today. Uh, Father, your word is timeless. And, um, Lord Jesus, as you spoke it to this church, we pray that by your spirit you'd speak it to this church. And into every single one of our souls, Lord, into our lives. And, um, Father, we've sung about the resurrection. We've sung about the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we've, we've sung about the confidence that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, show us now what that looks like in this little church and by your grace, God, in this one too. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So the Grand Canyon, depending on... Who you, who you ask, um, is, is anywhere from 5,000 year old, 5,000 years old, according to young earth geologists, to as many as 70, 80, 90 million years old, if you hold to an old earth view. It's 277 miles long. It's a, it's a, it's a massive thing. It's the only earthly feature that's visible from the moon, I've been told. I don't know that firsthand. It's anywhere from 4 to 18 miles wide, and going underneath it there, down in the bottom of it, is the, is the Colorado River. Um, 
it's interesting that regardless of whether it's 5,000 or 70 million, that river just continues to wind and over time makes changes. Over time, the evidence of those changes are made visible. In Boone, Montauga County, um, what old earth geologists say is one of the oldest mountain structures on earth is Grandfather Mountain. And one number that's given to old grandfather up there is 750 million years old. I have no idea how they may have arrived at that number. But those 750 million years have taken a toll on grandfather. All right. He's just not as perky in a lot of features as he once was. Okay. And I don't know that by experience either. I just we just assume that over the time, those rocks begin to wear down a little bit. Those edges are worn off. In The Hobbit, Gollum and Bilbo are exchanging riddles, okay? And Gollum tried to stump Bilbo with this riddle. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal. Slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. Of course, the answer is time. We keep time by seconds and minutes, and we keep days and weeks and months. Time, the Bible tells us, takes its toll on all things, including nations. The great features of Rome at the height of that empire are now Ruined rocks stacked on top of each other. And should the Lord tarry, the same thing will happen to this nation as has happened to every other nation before us. That's just the way time works in a fallen, sinful world. The Word makes this clear. Isaiah 40, I was reading earlier this week. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes the coastlands, takes them up like fine dust. In, in chapter 40 later on, it says, He who sits above the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Time takes its toll. Now, God is above our understanding of time, right? We get that. He sees it all as one instant. We have time in minutes and hours and days and months and years and centuries. Time is used by God as a tool, but time is also a gift from God, right? Would we agree? Time is a gift from him. Peter tells us to not overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The psalmist said a thousand years in your sight are as a day or even a watch in the night, like four hours. So time is, is, is irrelevant to God in one sense, but yet is used by him in another. And one of the things that we've seen, we've talked a lot about this over the last year. In fact, I've gone back through some sermon notes and I've used this phrase several times. Jesus is Lord over every minute of every day of every week, of every month, of every year, for every century, for all time. He's Lord over that. And we used that phrase, 
I used it so that we would gain comfort from that and security and peace and not feel like that in the midst of everything going on, all of a sudden God's gone to sleep. He's somehow checked out for a while. But not only should that reality give us security and peace, it should give us a kingdom perspective of time and recognize that this day, okay, this day, what is it, 1103, is a gift. It is a gift. We have a member of our church who's, there's not many minutes or hours left in her life this side of heaven. Every day is a gift. Every minute is a gift. And not only is it a gift, it's a stewardship. It's an opportunity. It's a chance that God has given us. And he's put before us minutes that are sovereignly ordained yet given for us to live them out. Listen, with confidence and boldness. And that's what we see in this little church in Philadelphia. Confidence and boldness. They were faithful to Jesus. And because they were faithful to Jesus, he was faithful to them to open up more opportunities for service. More opportunities for witnessing and evangelism. And he put before them this promise. I'll give you these opportunities and I will hold you through every one of them. I will not let go of you. That's what we see in this passage. Look at Jesus' description of himself in verse 7. To the angel of the church, again, to the, to the pastor or the angel, to those with spiritual responsibility, he writes to this church and listen to his description of himself. Now, pay attention to this because up until this letter, the description that Jesus gives of himself looks back to chapter 1 where we saw this glorious image, this glorious vision of Jesus. This one... This, this description that Jesus gives goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's not just back to chapter 1. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one's opens. The first description that Jesus gives is of his holiness. And the Holy One is a critical term for us to understand because it's over 30 times we see that in the book of Isaiah. And every time, it is God's description of himself. In his holiness, God is distinct. He's separate. He's unlike anything or anyone else. And no one but God can say, I am the Holy One. Yes, by his grace, we are given a measure of that righteousness that is in Christ. A measure of that holiness that is in Christ. Not because we do anything to deserve it. He earned it on the cross and gives it to us by grace. But God alone is the Holy One. And Jesus takes that phrase for himself. It's a, it's a bold claim of divinity. And he goes back to the Old Testament to take it. He also is the true one. And we know, he is the way, the truth, and the life, Right? But do you understand, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, everything we read in the Scripture about Him that points to Him, everything about that is true. Because He is the truth. And we'll see in a minute, He cannot lie as He's compared to the, the false synagogue that's there. He is the Holy One, He is the True One, and He is the One who has authority. Notice that He says, He has the key of David. Well, remember, we were walking through the Psalms and talking about this earlier. We touched on it in chapter 1. The idea of a key is authority. We used to joke about it around here because we had hundreds of doors, it seemed, with hundreds of keys. 
And there was one gentleman, F.O. Clayton, had all those keys, okay? And it didn't matter if you were pastor here for 150 years, you didn't have the authority. F.O. had it because he had the keys, all right? We still don't know who all had keys to our house, all right? I mean, we just don't know who had keys to the parsonage. It was authority. And here it's a picture of authority. It designates one who has the right to open or shut a door, to lock it or unlock it, to swing it open or to close it. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, Jesus said, I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. I have the keys, Jesus says. And specifically here, it's the key of David which is the picture of God's covenant promise to David that he would always have a descendant on the throne, that God's Messiah would rule and reign over the world. Now, here's the thing that's so cool about this. Again, going back to the Old Testament, these very words come from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 22. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 22:20, And God is talking about that transfer of power that he's about to bring about over his people because of the unfaithfulness of their leaders. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim in Isaiah chapter 22 is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus looking forward to when Jesus would fulfill this role. And one commentator I read, it was so cool, tied this into Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So here Eliakim is said, okay, I'm going to put on his shoulders the government for my people. But Jesus has his government on his shoulders for eternity, it says in Isaiah 9. Eliakim would be given as the father to Jerusalem and Judah. But in Isaiah 9, it tells us that he is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. It tells us here that Eliakim will be on the throne of his father's house temporarily. And Isaiah 9 tells us there will be no decrease in Jesus' rule and reign. It will increase as he sits on David's throne. So the point of this is that Christ rules over his church as king, as the holy one, the true one, the one with authority. And we have to recognize that, church. He's here this morning. He's in our midst. He he sees, I know your works, he says in just a minute. He knows that. And no one can open and no one can shut. Who opened or shut the door to the ark? God did. Jesus is that ark of safety. Come to him. And confessing our need, confessing our need for his forgiveness and his grace, he opens the door. And no one can shut it. And once we're in, no one can open it and snatch us out. That's this beautiful picture of him. In the course of human history, he's opening doors and shutting them for his people. That's his description of himself. Look at verse 8. Now he commends this church. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you 
an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The first word of commendation here, he says, you have little power. And I, and I think it's implied in here, not only do you have little power, but you know it. You recognize it. That's the whole point here, I think. Paul would say later on in Second Corinthians in chapter 12, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This little church in Philadelphia knew that they did not have any strength. That's not a slam on their church that Jesus is making. It's a commendation. Because Jesus is communicating in this what we see throughout the scripture, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To the one who will confess his need. It's, a, it's an accurate evaluation of that church. It's, it's not a criticism. He sees them, Jesus does, and he knows. Now, next week we'll contrast this with what we see in Laodicea. In fact, you, you can just flip ahead there and see the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So here's the contrast. One church says, oh, we have it. The other church says, we don't. And Jesus sees the difference. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When we know that we are weak, when we feel that weakness, and then when we confess that weakness, even delight in it, knowing that it is in that context, it's in that setting, that Jesus comes to us and says, I know you don't have much strength. I know you have little strength. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. And he comes along beside us. And, and here's the point, I believe, that the strongest church is the one who recognizes how little strength it has apart from Christ. The strongest Christian is the one who recognizes apart from Christ, I have nothing. I can do nothing. And his strength is made perfect in that. Secondly, he says, you have kept my word. And I added in my notes... And you show it. They show it by the way that they keep his name, that they walk in faithful obedience. They don't deny the name of Christ. This church is not different from the others in that it faced constant trials. It faced a Jewish community that was opposed to them and would shut them out. It faced people who didn't believe what they believe and didn't do what they did. But they did not compromise. And they're faced with constant opposition and ridicule. We, we somehow have... have convinced ourselves that all the cultural issues and and things that we face they're new to they're not new to us there's nothing new under the sun nothing and they faced this too and faced with these constant trials they were staying true to the word of god they were not compromising in their personal lifestyle it seems even though they were ridiculed for that and they recognized what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And they did not deny the name of Jesus. 
So they're not denying scriptural truth, doctrinal truth, if you will, and they're not denying the core tenets of the gospel. That apart from Christ, there is no salvation. And here's the thing about it. Opposition did not deter them. It did not quieten them. It did not cause them to back into their corner. And in fact, it seemed to spur them on. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16. He says in verses 8 and 9, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Now listen to that. Paul's excited to stay in Ephesus because there's been a door opened. Effective work, he says, is being done. I'm excited to stay here because this work is there. And it seems to say I'm also excited to be here because there's a lot of opposition Dude, what's up with that? That seems to be mutually exclusive. Do you know where, right now, the church is growing faster than any other place on the globe? Iran. Iran. They tell us that it's growing at over 5 to 6% a year. It's incredible what's going on. And we don't hear it, we don't see it, it's not published. In Iran, it is the case that all of their rights, I'm talking about as Christians, this is the words of one of their pastors. All the rights and the citizens' privileges have been taken away. Freedom of worship, freedom of meeting together are non-existent. And on many occasions, properties are taken by the government, people are expelled from their work, they lose their pensions, and as soon as someone learns that they are a Christian believer, they are pushed into a corner and alienated. He goes on and says, what if I told you the best evangelist for Jesus in Iran was Ayatollah Khomeini? The Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light and people discovered that it was a lie. And after 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia, according to them, they have brought about the worst devastation in the 5,000 year history of Iran. Do you hear that? 5,000 year history of Iran. And this pastor went on. Disciples for Christ forsake the world and cling to Jesus until he comes. Converts don't. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. And then here's one other point. Last year, when the United States killed one of the leading military leaders in Iran, the church there tightened their belts and got ready. And this pastor writes, We believe that if war comes, it will create a humanitarian crisis, but also... An open door for evangelism. Quote, a tsunami of disaster will bring a tsunami of opportunity. Opposition and opportunity go hand in hand because they are held in the same hand. Do you see that, church? And I'll give you a point of application that I'll stress here in just a minute, but... When it seems the world is falling apart around us, 
If we as Christians go cower in our corner and plea and plot for how we can save something that is temporary and not going to last. And don't see it as an opportunity to expand the kingdom of God in a mighty way. We're not walking faithfully like the church of Philadelphia did. They did walk faithfully. And Jesus commended them. I know your weakness, and you do too, so you're walking in my strength. He said, I understand that you are keeping my words, and you're showing that in your faithful obedience. And you're not denying the gospel because you proclaim the name of Christ. You proclaim the name of Christ. And so there are promises offered to them. Look at what it says there in the rest of the text, starting in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Behold... I I love the fact that in these three verses, Jesus says, you need to look at something here. All right? Behold. We don't use that word much. That's a good word, though. All right? And if you do use that a lot in conversation, people are probably going to look at you like, well, what is that? Behold. I bet you get their attention. I bet if you say, behold, for a minute at least, they're going to listen to you. Well, Jesus says that here three times in two sentences. Behold, look, church, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who to try those who dwell on the earth. First, the promise to them is opportunities. And we just talked about that opportunities for witness and ministry. Now, some see this text and they believe that Jesus is talking about an open door to heaven. Okay, an open door, if you will, to the ark of safety. And, And that's true. He is that right. But others see it, and I think the text supports that it's an open door of opportunity for witness and evangelism and ministry and service. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. It's both of those. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we see that here. You're going to have opportunities, church, regardless of what's going on around you. Opportunities for witness and ministry. Secondly, confidence. Vindication, if you will. Again, to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need, to use your, you need to use your study Bible or you need to use those center column notes that are in your Bible. You need a Bible that says that. You need to be able to go back and look at some of the background verses that this is referring to. He says here, Behold, I'll make those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. What is up with that? Remember that according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, descendants of Abraham, blood relatives in the Jewish family, are not the true Israel as we see it in the New Testament. That is a people of faith. That is people who have come to Jesus. And so the Jews in Jesus' day and here in Revelation who reject Jesus as the Messiah are not, in God's eyes, the true synagogue. It is those Messianic believers. It is those Messianic Jews. And here he says, you know, we've seen this before. Remember the church in Smyrna? That was another faithful church who faced an opposition from the Jewish community. 
And Jesus had said in John 8 when he was talking to the Pharisees, you're children of the father of lies. And here Jesus says the same thing. They're lying. They are not true Jews. And here's the situation. Jesus says, I'm going to open doors and no one can shut them. And you know what the synagogue was doing? Shutting the door. These, these folks couldn't go worship, couldn't go fellowship, couldn't go be a part of, of their Jewish culture because that door was shut by that synagogue. Jesus says, don't worry about it. I'm opening doors that no one can shut. And so this Jewish opposition was real. But again, to understand exactly what's going on here, what does he mean when you'll, they will come and bow down? This is a reversal of roles because any, any Jew who understood, any, anyone in Israel who understood what the Old Testament taught, understood that one day God promised that the Gentiles would come and not in boot-licking kind of defeat, but in humility and in worship, would come and kneel down before the people of God. And so they had this in mind. They understood that's what's promised. Isaiah 49, listen to this. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick dust at your feet. Later on in Isaiah 60, the sons of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is using the same image, except now the shoes changed. Now these Gentile believers in this church are getting this picture that one day you will be vindicated. It's, it's that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and those who belong to Jesus will be a part of that. Not that we will be worshipped, but we will be shown to be right. We will be shown to be on the right side, right? That's what Revelation is all about. And he's saying, you'll be vindicated. I want you to rest in that. And then in verse 10, verse 10. All right, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We'll talk about it more. But he gives this assurance in the midst of trials. And, and this is one of the most debated and discussed verses in the book of Revelation and also really in all of our understanding of end-time studies, eschatology. It's, it just is. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole earth or on literally the earth dwellers. And every place else in Revelation where you see that term earth dwellers, it is talking about the judgment of God on the lost. All right. It's talking about God's wrath poured out on those who have rejected Christ. Earth dwellers. All right. Sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. But that's the term that's used for those who reject and the judgment of God on them. So there's a challenge here with this verse. What does he mean by the hour of trial? That's the first question. And what is the precise meaning of keep you from that hour of trial? All right? And, and I appreciate what a, a lot of scholars have said. I appreciate what Danny Aiken said in this, in that there are good, godly teachers and pastors who are on different sides of this debate. All right? Because some hold that this is teaching what we see in 1 Thessalonians, which is called the, the secret rapture of the church. That Jesus is going to come, and, and really it means he's going to come twice. He's going to come once secretly and remove his church before the thousand-year tribulation, or before the great tribulation and the millennium, the thousand-year reign. And so some hold to this. Good godly teachers hold to this. 
And then there are good, godly teachers and scholars and pastors on the other side that say, no, this isn't a secret rapture of the church. He is not going to remove the church. And it talks about the Greek prepositions here. He's going to go with the church through the tribulation. They're going to be protected through it, not removed from it. Okay? Now then, some also hold that this teaches about death. That the great hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth is, is death itself. And that God's people are protected from that. So there's, there's those who say we're going to be removed. There's those who say, no, it's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? In the furnace. And who's that one in there with them? And they're protected in that trial and through that trial and coming out on the other side. And others would say that it's, no, we're going to be protected from death. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and we know that we're going to be okay through that. All right? Now, I'm, so, Gerald, what are you saying? What do you think? Well, come to me and I'll talk to you about that. All right? Here's, here's my struggle, and I'll just be real transparent with you for a minute. And this is one of those things that I'm not real sure yet exactly where I've come down on. This idea of the rapture is, is, a, is a valid teaching coming from 1 Thessalonians, okay? And it's also a valid teaching coming out of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, where Paul talks something about that. Um, here's where my personal struggle is with the concept that we're going to be removed out and just taken away from the suffering of the Great Tribulation is that there's no place else in the Bible where I see God taking his people out of tribulation. I, I don't see that. He goes with us through it. The Lord is my shepherd. He, he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I'm not saying I'm not convinced that that... I'm just saying that's part of what I'm... A big picture of the whole scriptural record gives us that, that indication that God goes with us through those trials. He goes with us through those things. And there are other times where we see him remove his people and take them away from that danger. So it's just a struggle here. Here's what Dr. Aiken said, and I really appreciate this. Ultimately, the most important issue, and by the way, Danny, Dr. Aiken is, 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 believes in the premillennial rapture of the church, okay? He's one of these guys who believes in that. And he says, ultimately, the most important issue is not physical protection from temporal wrath, but spiritual protection from eternal wrath. Our Lord protects us to the end and forever. We are safe from the wicked assaults of Satan and his demons now, in the future, and forever. Might this, he says, be the main focus of verse 10? So, like I said, I want to talk with you about this. Here's what I know for absolute certain. That neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that. And I hold to that. And here's what Jesus promises to his faithful church. An open door of ministry and opportunity. And confidence and boldness as we go through those open doors of ministry and opportunity because we will face opposition. And that opposition is not a deterrent or hindrance. It's an opportunity opening door. And as we face that opposition, Jesus says, I've got you. I've got you. And I rest in that. And we rest in this last promise 
Look what he says. I am coming soon. Now, this is hard, too, all right? Because for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, he's coming soon. All right? Now, remember, God's 1,000 years and ours are different, right? His hours and our hours are different. And for a long, long time, God's people have been holding on to the fact, as Jesus says later on in chapter 22, yes, I am coming soon. And we say what? Yes, Lord Jesus, come. Come. So every generation for the last 2,000 plus years has been holding on to this promise that he is coming soon. And in the eternal picture, it is soon. It is. So we hold on to that. Opportunity, vindication, assurance, certainty that he is returning. And finally, this reward. He says, I am coming soon. So what? Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is not a warning against losing our salvation. This is a warning or an encouragement to stay faithful and through to the end so no one takes away our reward. That's what this crown is in this context, I believe. It's not about losing our, our, our salvation. It's about losing our reward. He says, hold fast to what you have. Remember what Paul said? I take hold of that which, for Christ, which Christ Jesus has already taken hold for me. And one of the ways we hold fast, Paul says, is forgetting what is behind. I strain forward. I press on. That's what it means to hold fast. That's what it means to make progress in the Christian life. Don't lose your crown. Then he says, to the one who conquers, this looks a little weird to us. I understand that, but let's allow ourselves, again, go to your cross-references. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Do you see these possessive terms that Jesus is using? This is my God. This is the city of my God. This is the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is a picture of union with Jesus, security with him. It's a picture of fellowship with him, that we are his and he is ours for all of eternity. So this city in Philadelphia knew what it was like to live in an earthquake zone. And you've seen these pictures where these earthquake hit, earthquakes hit, and the only thing left is the, is the columns that supported that building. That's the only thing left standing. And Jesus is saying, you're that secure. You, you will be standing, Okay. And so there's this contrast between the insecurity and the instability and the temporalness, if you will, of things on this earth and the eternity of the city of God. All right. So he says, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall you go out of it. That's that's what we just talked about. Right. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to myself and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. We'll be with him, secure there, like one of these columns that's going to stand if everything else falls. He said, Jesus says, that's what you have. And there's this contrast between that. I love what Greg Beale says about this. He says, the religious system, perhaps in our day, even the institutional church, will always attack genuine believers who draw their strength from fellowship with Christ and not identify with an earthly system. 
Systems, by the way, which he says are about to be unmasked in the visions of the horrible reality that we see in the beast and the dragon later on in Revelation. So there's this contrast between this synagogue of Satan built on lies and the eternal security of being with Jesus. And Ezekiel says that that's the name, by the way, that's, that's on that place. It is the name of God. So there's a crown for the victors. There's security with God. And there's this full identity with Jesus. Look at what he says. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. God's name will be mine. The temple of God will be my dwelling place. I will be with him. The new Jerusalem is, if, when we see later on in Revelation, the new Jerusalem listen, is both people and a place. It's both, Okay. We say this is the church. Well, it is in, in one sense, it is, but you're the church. And that's the idea that we get in the temple later on. And we'll receive the name of Jesus. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, it says in chapter 22. So we are his and he is ours. Let me, let me give you three points of application here as we close, okay? First one, humility and brokenness. Is what ought to be evident in our lives in the, in the presence of the one who is the Holy One and the True One. Humility and brokenness. Because repentance for our pride and our self-sufficiency, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, like the church here in Philadelphia, that ought to mark us as a church. Not, not man-centered boldness, but a humility. That cries out, we need Christ. Secondly, consider your time, okay? Consider the day you have here before you. Consider the life, all right? Consider the dates on either side of the dash. And what is that time? It is a gift. It is a gift. Praise God, it might be long for some. Praise God, it might be short for some. But it is a gift. And those days that are given to us, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why you're breathing, guys. The reason God woke us up this morning and gave us the grace to breathe and live was to, to serve him. Not to earn salvation, but as evidence of that salvation, as the fruit of that tree that's rooted in Christ. That's, that's why you're drawing a breath. That's not to build our kingdom. Not to pad our, you know, our things. It's, it's for Him. And you and I are responsible for seeking that out and living it out. Consider your time. Now listen, if you've never trusted Jesus, you have one job, one work, and that's turn to Him now. That's it. And I believe that's why you have breath. That God in His grace has given you the opportunity to turn from your sin and give meaning and purpose to that life of yours. And that comes in walking with Christ. And I would encourage you, you know, come up to me at the end of the service. Come to one of our other pastors. Just go to one of our members. Say, I, I want to know more about what it means to trust Jesus, this one who is the Holy One, the True One. That's your job. That's what you need to be doing. Okay. And finally, again, church, Opposition is opportunity, and this is no time for the people of God in America or any of the other Western cultures that might 
fall into this category. This is no time for our church to back into a corner and cower at what's going on around us. It is no time for us to back away and just wring our hands and wonder what in the world is this world coming to. This world is coming to exactly what God has ordained that it's coming to. This world is opposed to biblical truth. This world is opposed to Jesus as the Holy One, as the true one, as the only one who is the way to God. This culture is opposed to that. And they will be opposed to his people who walk with him in holiness and in truth. They were in Philadelphia. They will be in Roxborough. And the opportunity there before us comes exponentially increasing as that opposition does as well. I'm excited. I've got to tell you. I'm excited at the opportunity that's going to be presented to the people of God in our country over the next four years. And maybe longer than that. Because we have the opportunity before us to live out our faith and to speak God's truth into a culture that is going to be so contrary to that, that just like it was in the book of Acts, listen, there'll be no middle ground. So God help us to be faithful like this little church in Philadelphia. Faithful to walk with you. Faithful to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, God, faithful to love our neighbor as ourselves, recognizing that they need Jesus worse than they need anything. And he's called us to be on that mission with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it's timeless again, God, and that what was being faced by that little faithful church in Philadelphia, Lord, that weak little church that nobody really recognized or noticed, God, you had empowered them with the very power that raised Jesus from the grave, and we pray for that here. Father, give us that, humble us if we need to be humbled. Lord, help us recognize just how great our God is. And Lord, what great opportunities are given for us as we walk with you in this dark and hurting world. Help us, Lord, be salt and light. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together as we close our time.